It's Divas That Care Radio. Stories, strategies, and ideas to inspire positive change. Welcome to Divas That Care, a network of women committed to making our world a better place for everyone. This is a global movement for women, by women, engaged in a collaborative effort to create a better world for future generations. To find out more about the movement, visit divasthatcare.com after the show. Right now, though, stay tuned for another jolt of inspiration. We all seem to have that inner critic inside our heads. I have a committee, the Itty Bitty Shitty Committee. You know what I mean, that nagging voice, or voices in my case, that knocks us down and drags us down the road of self-sabotage and self-neglect. A strong, positive sense of self-esteem is your first step to anything you wish to accomplish. Discover who you truly are, that gorgeous, talented, fabulous woman who deserves recognition and unconditional love. You know the most beautiful thing any woman can wear is confidence. Here on Confidence in Bloom with the Divas That Care Network, I, Tina Spolatini, speak with women living in their own self-confidence about who they truly are, how they found themselves, and how they care for themselves. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jody Carrington. Dr. Jody Carrington is a renowned psychologist sought after for her expertise, energy, and approach to helping people solve their complex human-centered challenges. Jody focuses much of her work around reconnection, the key to healthy relationships and productive teams. As a best-selling author, speaker, and leader of Carrington & Company, Jody uses humor and all she has learned in her 20-year career as a psychologist psychologist to empower everyone she connects with. In her latest book, Feeling Seen, she dives into what it takes to reconnect a disconnected world. Jody's message is, a, is as simple as it is complex. We are wired to do the hard things, but we were never meant to do any of this alone. Welcome, Jody. I'm so excited. Okay, so here's the deal. In the history of the free world, we've never, ever been this disconnected, okay? So despite the fact that we've never had this much access to each other in terms of technological advances and our ability to just, you know, pick up a phone or a FaceTime or a whatever, uh, we've never felt more alone. And here's the other truth. We will never automate relationships. You will never, ever be able to replicate what it feels like to be in the same physical space as another human being. And as a result of that, given just even the past couple of generations, we have spent less and less proximity with each other. And something changes. If we could do this interview in the same room, neurophysiologically, we'd be in a much different, likely better place than we would if we have to do this over the phone. Okay. And The point is, there's a mental health crisis that everybody talks about. What is wrong with kids these days? What is happening with people? Why is the suicide rate so high? Um, Why are shootings becoming such a big issue? And the issue, the, the, the answer for me always comes back to this idea. When you are acknowledged, you rise. When you are seen and heard and validated, you have access to the best parts of yourselves. But when you have never felt this disconnected, the worst parts of humanity emerge. Wow, that is like, it, it's amazing, and yet at the same time, it's, it feels like it should be common sense, <laughs> right? right? Like it, but it, it's also very, like, empowering because, I mean, we know when you give children praise, their behavior improves. 
Right. right? And there's a couple of things about praise or a couple of things about acknowledgement that I think are really true. Okay. So here's the definition of acknowledgement. It is the act of bearing witness to the act of holding space for. It has nothing to do with things like an apology. It has nothing to do with things like um, fixing, right? providing solutions, strategy, suggestions, and it must be genuine. And so when we think about acknowledging something, so Indigenous peoples in our country often talk about the necessity of land acknowledgement. And oftentimes we miss, not miss, we assume that means we need to apologize for the things that, um, you know, have been done, or we need to provide solutions or strategies. Or if I tell you that, you know, somebody just needs to be acknowledged, they're like, oh, hi, hi, yep, no, you look great. The truth behind truly acknowledging is that it actually doesn't require you to do anything. You don't have to fix anything. If you just give a compliment to somebody, you can not only change a life these days, you can save it, but it must be genuine. Right. So kindness mm-hmm. pays, right? Yeah, 100%. I get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mm-hmm. get that. That's like if you give a stranger a smile, you know, it's not coming from anywhere, but from your heart, you could make their day. Oh my gosh. And when you listen, some of the most brilliant people in this world have taught me these really important lessons. Like one of my favorite authors right now is a guy named Jesse Thistle. He's an indigenous man who's written from the ashes. It's a Canadian bestseller, international bestseller. And he was homeless, grown up in the foster care system, was in jail, struggled significantly with addiction, all understandably given his, you know, intergenerational trauma experience. And he talks about some of the things. He's now finishing his PhD at York University, is married, and has this beautiful baby. And when I asked him about, you know, what were some of those moments that were transitional for you, he, he described this one, and I was just like, gives me chills. Because he said, you know, I was sitting on the corner of a street, and I hadn't showered in days, and I was, you know, just wanting some money for, a, a you know, lunch. And so he said I had a coffee cup, and I was sitting there. And, and this human being let, knelt down. And God eyes, his eyes, and just said, what is your name? And he said, I remember when he asked me that question, I was like sort of taken away. Like I had never heard myself say my name for, for probably months. And so when I said out loud, my name is Jesse, it occurred to me that, you know, my, my dad gave me that name. My mom gave me that name, that I am somebody. And this, this person knelt down beside me, didn't see me as somebody who was dirty or you know, addicted or, you know, had this, this horrid history. He just wanted to know who I was, what my name was. And he, you know, introduced himself, you know, said his name was David and, you know, that he had this, you know, $5 and he, you know, hoped I could get lunch. And, um, you know, he said, I, I thought about him for so many days after that, that he asked me who I was. And it really started to sort of beg that question about, you know, who am I? And any time, that he thinks about, you know, the, the keys to the, the transition for him. Um, he has a number of stories of people who saw him when they didn't need to. People who, you know, caught him stealing food and, you know, didn't reprimand, in fact, gave him more. And he just said it was the biggest lesson of his life because it truly comes back to this idea of, of a simple acknowledgement. And the ones who need it the most are the hardest to give it to. Isn't it so, like, funny, I guess ironic, like, he didn't even think of himself as a person until he realized my mom and dad gave me that name. Right. right? It's like, yeah, like, he realized, like, wow, like, my mom and dad brought me into this world, and they were probably 
you know, happier than happy can be. They gave me this name. They picked this name for me. There's a reason behind that, right? And that all of a sudden changed his mindset. Mm-hmm. And how old? He, I'm assuming he's like an adult, like well over 18. Yeah. When this was happening. Like, and I, and it, that, that's a great question. And it, like, and here's what I think about all the time, right? We make assumptions, and you know, I, I give you the story about Jesse just because it, it's always heavy on my heart, but. I think about oftentimes we look at, at anybody and we assume that they're doing great because of positions or power or wealth or any of those things. But the truth is, regardless of age, race, religion, socioeconomic status, gender identity, we all just want to be seen. And it becomes really difficult to make a judgment about who needs it and who doesn't because so much of the time um, when you have a heartbeat, when people truly acknowledge you, um, it's life-changing. And our ability to do that for other people is free. Our ability to do that for other people is exponential. And here's the tricky thing, and I love this as a psychologist, because when you are giving it away to somebody else, you are inherently at your best. Because most of mental health issues start from a very intrinsically focused place. We are worried about ourselves. We're worried we're too fat or our heart's racing too much or we're too not enough and we're idiots or we're depressed or we're all of these things. Eh? That's very internally focused. When I even take a few moments during the day and look outside of myself, wonder what that person, you know, in the purple hoodie is thinking or give a kid with the hair down and the hoodie up in the 7-Eleven a compliment, I'm switching that internal focus to an external focus if even for a few moments. And regardless of how it may or may not benefit them, it will benefit you. And part of our shift now that we get, you know, we spend so much time scrolling other people's lives. We spend so much time in our own heads, inundated by social media and, you know, inputs of the should-be's of the world, that we spend very little time wondering what other people are doing and thinking and needing from us. And so being able to do that on purpose is, quite frankly, the answer to it all. Right, and but when you say on purpose, you don't necessarily like you don't mean um, because I've judged you, you're you're changing your ways. You mean more like because I'm giving you a compliment, I'm going to help you rise. Yeah, and in so doing, it requires me to actually think about you instead of me. And so it's the sneaky way. Like when I say to people, a couple of things I want you to do in a day that I know is going to benefit you is number one, I want you to drop your shoulders. Right now, whatever you're doing in this moment, wherever you're listening right. to this, I want you just to drop your shoulders. People are like, what are you talking about? Okay, drop your shoulders. Like literally, drop your shoulders. Wiggle your toes. Relax your jaw. Let your gut out. That puts you in a relaxed state, which means your prefrontal cortex from a neuro- neurological position comes back online. And that's where the best parts of you live. You lose access to those parts of you when your shoulders go up, your gut comes in, and you start to think about, oh, what's for supper? What am I doing here? God, why wasn't I nicer to my kid? I should have married somebody else. Uh, I didn't work out today. Da, 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 da. Hmm? All yeah. of those things happen. Your body keeps the score. Bessel van der Kolk uh, wrote, is one of my favorite people on the planet. He wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's so true, huh? because we think a lot about our thoughts and cognitive behavioral interventions have talked a lot about, you know, change your thinking, change your life, which is kind of BS. If you don't 
pay attention to how your body responds because you can drink all the kale and do all the friggin' yoga you want, but if you are still very much caught up in a sense of fight or flight, you, um, your body keeps the score. So this very deliberate focus of dropping your shoulders gets you back into the present moment. I mean, it's very Eastern philosophically based, but it's brilliant. And so I have, to, I have notes everywhere, like notes everywhere, like in my car and on my bathroom mirror that just says drop your shoulders. And every time I see it, it brings me back into the present because guess where my shoulders are every friggin' time? Huh? Wow. About, like, like earrings. Huh? And the second thing then is if you can just look at somebody else during the day. If I, if I on purpose challenge you to do this a couple of times a day, give somebody a genuine compliment, that becomes your job and it becomes a focus in which you will switch your your focus, your intention away from yourself onto somebody else. And if left to our own devices, we're much more comfortable in this self-berating mode, like what we're not doing well enough, what we're not doing right. I mean, we come from generations of people who are not generally optimistic, right? Generally, pe- people are like, oh, my gosh, just wait for it. Somebody's going to die. Or it's too wet. It's too dry. I mean, I was raised by a farmer. Too wet. It's too dry. You know, plan for all the worst so that you'll be ready for it when it comes. But the problem hold to emotions i mean one will always win right you can you can have multiple emotions at one time but one will always win if you're busy worried about all the bad stuff what you're missing is the good stuff and we come from generations that had to be prepared for all the bad stuff and so now on purpose being able to focus in on huh what is going well i mean it's 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 sort of the theoretical basis of the gratitude movement which is so I mean, it's kind of getting kitschy these days, but it is still so necessary to on purpose think about the things that are doing going well, because if left to our own devices, we will find all the things that are not going right. Oh, I mean, when you, when you say it, right, it makes it that much more real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so you sort of drop your purpose, shoulders. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Drop your shoulders is rule number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, give someone a compliment. Yeah. A couple times and a day. I, get, get crazy. Yeah. It get crazy. <laughs> and, and obviously, like, I mean, you're, the people that you are in touch with every day are easier to give compliments generally, right? Because, I mean, it's easy to say, oh, you know, you know you're, that top looks nice on you or, oh, you know, it's nice to see you wearing that again. But if you give compliments to strangers, I think it's more, it's a stronger effect. Well, I agree with you. And I think that here's the interesting thing. The people we love the most are the hardest to give it to. Now, think about this when your partner comes through the door, right? And they're exhausted. And, like, I mean, when I text my husband and I say, I don't know if I tell you this enough, honey, but, like, you're an amazing dad. Do you know what his response is? Often it's suspicion. Right? I was just going to say, he probably says, what do you want? How much did it cost me? What did you buy? What did you yeah. buy is his number one response. And, and it's interesting to me. So we are neurobiologically wired for connection. If you disconnect from an infant, they die. Okay? We will never automate that. But the hardest thing you will do is look into the eyes of the people you love. And Anon has created this beautiful, I often talk about this, this research protocol that I think is just so amazing. His suggestion, and he's replicated this across industry and organization and around the world, and he said, your only job tonight is to go home and look at somebody you love for four minutes. And people are like, four minutes? The hell are you supposed to do for four minutes? 
Huh? And it is ridiculous, right? Like we've procreated with these people. We've given birth to these people. We have lived with our siblings our whole lives. And the only ask is that you go home and look at somebody for four minutes. And we're like, oh, my God. So I tried this. Like 10 seconds is too long. (laughs) Right. And so I tried this with my personal husband. And he's like, oh, my. Okay, wait, 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 wait. We started. We had to do a timer because he's a a feedlot nutritionist. And so he's got a spreadsheet for everything. So we had to do a timer. And so we started the timer. And he called a timeout. Six seconds in. I know. And I was like, well, what do you mean a timeout? He's like, he said, I just have a question. What am I looking for specifically? Like, oh did you goodness. get a new shirt? Is this a new haircut? Like, you didn't want to be wrong. huh? I was like, oh, for the love of Jesus, just look at me. And, and it's so fascinating, right? Because if you watch this replicated, in the first 30 seconds, most people sort of are uncomfortable. They, like, make faces at each other. Or they kind of joke or, like, poke at each other. Or, like, oh, my gosh, this is four minutes is so long. Do we have to do the full four? And then what happened about the one minute mark is you start to notice things that you haven't seen before, right? Like you're like, you know, sort of noticing the lines on your partner's face or, um, you know, some of those kind of things. And if you can hang on to the three and a half or four minute mark, what tends to happen is you get emotional because so much of our relationships are written without words. Mm-hmm. And the less we have time on purpose to, to be with each other in, the, in, in close proximity, we lose access to those most emotionally connected parts. And so this also sort of, you know, translates into the workforce and into, you know, what we think about sort of automating most everything that we do now, working from home. I mean, it it is one of the the most contributing factors to burnout. We need each other. We need each other. And in in order to, to be mentored by somebody or to repair a relationship with somebody, you do that so much better and easier and more effectively face to face. Yeah. Yeah, I often will skip calling. I, I'm terrible, you know, making phone calls. But if I have the opportunity to sit with you and talk with you face-to-face, I'm the first one to offer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's brilliant. And getting people yeah. back into the office. Um, you know, during COVID, there was, of course, I'm, for the physical safety of our communities, you know, missing things like um, funerals or celebrations of life. Uh, those can't be missed. Those are critically important connection pieces, weddings, um, bar mitzvahs, celebrations, you know, being able to be together in the same physical place. If you can ever do that, mm -mm -mm, do it all the time. And, you know, I I think a lot about the summertime, you know, even we had our kids on a road trip and we almost, you know, all killed each other, but it was some of the most important things. Like our kids' favorite thing is to sleep in a hotel room with us. And we're like, what? It's happening with you. But there's it's the physical proximity that matters, right? You wake up together, you go to bed again, like, you know, and I and I think you just we should just never underestimate that that power. Right. Absolutely. I have to agree. But it, and it's funny because we don't really think about it, right? And like you said, that the you know, it's our loved ones, the ones we live with that are the hardest to, you know, give compliments to and really show love. I mean, there's you show love every day, but, you know, to look at them for four minutes, when you're first dating, right, you, you think, oh, I could look at this guy forever. He's so cute or he's so this or he's so that. And then you're married for 10 years and you're like, I don't even know the last time I looked at you, really. Truly. 
Mm-hmm. Right? It, it's just because I guess we take it for granted. We take for granted that these people will always be there, right? Well, it also plays heavily into the fact that the more you mean to me, the more I stand to lose. So in the beginning, I i mean, this is what we call the sort of like the honeymoon period or, you know, why affairs are so easy to do because I, I don't have a lot to lose. I can gush over you and lean into you and look at you and feel that spark and that excitement. Once we've been married for 10 years and we have three kids together on the ground, I have a lot. I have a lot weighing on this relationship. And if you're assholery-ish or if you're not, you know, communicating in the way that I want you to or you're letting me down when I look at you, it's safer not to. And the more I do that, the further I perpetuate. I mean, it's, it's the heart of all couples therapy. When I get two people, I love doing couples therapy. It's like the funnest part of my job. Because it is such an interesting task. My only job is to get two people to look at each other and to get back to this sort of place of, you know, why did you get into this relationship? What is so great about this guy? What is so great about this human? And it often is really hard to get there in the beginning because it was like, well, she used to be nice and now she's a bag or, you know, my only reason I got with this guy is because we got pregnant at a bush party and I had to marry, you know. I'm like, oh, gee, okay, slow it down. Tell me why, out of all the options you had, that this is the where you landed. Tell me about what it was about this person. And it's so fascinating to get people to that vulnerable place um, because it's risky, because it might not be reciprocated. But it often is necessary to sort of soften the other, right? Somebody has to take that risk first. It's such an interesting dance. Harriet Lerner talked often about um, she's a psychologist who I adore. She talks about the dance of intimacy. She's written a book about the dance of intimacy, the dance of anger. Um, and it's just so interesting about how the safety of being vulnerable with another, you know, has to be started by one. It might not always be reciprocated, which then really requires us to stick with it, to sit in that space a little bit and to not sort of be um, hurt repeatedly. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about. It's about that relationships will always be risky. And so how can we see through that initial sort of sense of, like, is it okay? I often, you know, get people in some of my talks to be able to do, like, okay, so send this text message to somebody. Send, I don't know if I tell you this enough, but you matter to me. And, you know, what I often tell the audience is that, you know, right away, you know, somebody's going to phone you because they're suspicious. Like, are you okay, mom? Or, like, what happened, honey? Um, Did somebody get your phone? Have you been drinking? You know, all of those things are pretty common. And then if you just sit with it, if you don't respond or if you just be like, no, I just was thinking about you today, then the softness comes because we're Um. often waiting for there to be a reason. Somebody got your phone or it's a joke or, you know, I, I, if you didn't receive it well, I'm like, well, shit, I'm never going to say that again. You know, so we often wait to see how the response is going to, is going to come back. And if you can sit with that, you'll get the softness in return. That's interesting. That yeah, yeah. that is really interesting. So you're a psychologist, mm-hmm. and so what? What? Um, I, I think like the, the way the brain works and how it makes us work is amazing. What <laughs> made you like decide to go into psychology? Uh-huh. Um, it's, I think relationships make us do <clears throat> everything we we want to do. So. There were so many people who made me great and so many people that didn't. And I often talk about a teacher, you know, who really started it all for me. But it's interesting. In, in my latest book, I wrote about 
the story of relationships that I think were a part of my story before I even knew it. So I grew up in this very safe, white, straight, able-bodied, privileged position and started on third base. But there was always something in the relationship with my parents that was missing or that I thought that I always had to be the funny one or anyways, whether this is true in retrospect or not, but my parents got divorced and I learned later. So we grew up, I have a younger brother and so we grew up in this house of four people. And I always knew like when I left university or when I left um, high school that I wanted to be a psychologist, I'm so interested in relationship and connection and trauma and like how this sort of mixes it all together. And I didn't know why to the, to the degree that it became such a passion in my life until I was 38. And I came home to the farm one summer and my, my mom and dad were both there and they'd been divorced for 15 years. And everybody was sitting at the kitchen table, my brother included. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And my dad starts to cry and my mom starts to cry. And they said, we have to tell you something that we haven't told anybody in 40 years. And I was like, what the, sh-? like, maybe dad's gay. Like what, like what, like we speak every day. Like I, there was nothing in my, in my mind that I could consider, like that I wouldn't know. Okay. And then my dad says, you have a sister. You have a full biological sister. Your, your mother and I got pregnant when we were in our late teens and we didn't want to disappoint our parents. And so we bound your mother's belly and, you know, I found a home for unwed mothers and your sister was born and she was um, adopted by a beautiful family, and we were told to never look for her again. Um, she's now just turned 42, I think, and um, she's found us. And so my brother and I are like, what? And they're, you know, they're like, oh, Joe, like she, she just sounds so much like you, and and she looks like your mother. And I was like, what, what do you mean? You, you, like you know her? Like you've met her? And they're like, yes. And we're just, like, wondering, like, would you guys like to meet her, too? And and in my head, like, I'm looking at my brother, who is, I don't know, he's, like, 35 at this point, And, like, both of us, like, are, like, oh, my God. And Curtis is saying, like, well, of course, Dad, like, you know, because they're balling. And I'm thinking, like, whoa, hold up. Like, two seconds ago, I was, like, the oldest child and the only daughter. And now I'm the middle kid. Like, no, no I'm going to need some time. And, like, maybe next Christmas I can meet her. And my dad's, like... Like, are you sure you'd be okay with meeting her? I was like, well, yeah, like, eventually. He's like, great, she's in the garage. And I was like, whoa, whoa, what? Like a puppy? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, she wasn't actually in the garage. She was driving on her way. She always tells the story where she's like, I would have turned around if you would have said no. And I was like, yeah, who would say no? What kind of person? So I was like, fine. So my brother and I, like, are holding hands, watching her drive up our driveway, our childhood driveway. And um, I'm like, what? Like, this is so messed up. And he's like, Frank? And I'm like, what do you even say to a sister? And he's like, I don't know, Joe. Like, maybe we should just start with, like, hi. And I was like, Kate, touche. So she walks in, and she's remarkable. And she looks like my mom, and she sounds like me. And she's got a PhD. Or no, 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 wait. She's got a degree in psychology. She, uh, We went to university the same time together. We lived six blocks from each other. You oh, never knew. I know. It's ridiculous. She's five years older than me. I would like to throw that out there. And um, now we're like, we're like best friends. She's been in our lives for, gosh, I was pregnant with our oldest. So 13 years. She's married to a firefighter and they live uh, like three hours from us. So we get together every holiday. Our kids are best friends. She's got a, her son is um, in between. So our oldest and our, we have twins. Um, so our twin boy and Carter are like best buds. Uh, her son looks more like me than than uh, my sons do. 
it's it's ridiculous. And and it was really just the epitome of, you know, just sort of watching my parents with her, watching my brother with her and, and you know, people in my life watching the two of us together. It's just it's such a unique experience with relationships that just really solidified, you know, so many things in may or may not have been in my bones to sort of understand this process and, and having the the luxury and the privilege to do it. It's just been such a joy. And now now my job is just to be able to to talk about that and, and what gets in the way of that. Um as a career and it's and it's been pretty cool. Wow. I did read your book and I read that part. Oh, and I nice. thought, wow, I can't I cannot imagine what it would be like for my parents to tell me, like after all these years, you know, that I'm not the oldest. Right? Like, like and I'm just so thing, glad that that yeah, she did that that she found it's they were kind alive. of weird. Like, don't you think? Like, that's what I'm worried about—not being the oldest. I'm like a mother. Like, I'm married. I have kids of my own, and I'm worried about being the oldest, right? But oh it's God, more it about right I back to your... being five. Yeah, yeah, and yet, like, we we don't need that. You know, I'm the oldest label. Well, right? obviously, because... you do. Uh, right, like. <laughs> Like, but it's like not, it's not a logical, you know, so what that you're the oldest, right? Like, it's not like you pull more weight than the others do. Well, kind of. I guess but it I depends feel like on your family, right? Like, and how, and like, such an how you were brought up. Yeah. And the story about you and them and all those things. And so it just, it just called into question so many of those interesting things. And, and as we continue to work through it, you know, like now as my, you know, as our parents age and, you know, like sort of what's her role in this process and, you know, like all of that kind of stuff has been so fun and so interesting to sort of navigate with her. And I just, I just feel really lucky. Like it's just been such a trip for sure. Yeah. I think it's awesome. Like, I think it's, you know, like it's a scary thought to have that big change after all these years, but at the same time, it's like, wow, like, we have more family. Like, how many more family members are going to show up, right? I mean, I hope oh, and not every time, that the same way. But you know what I mean? Well, and every time I tell this story, so we, we've told it on stage a couple of times together, and then, I, of course, I wrote about it um, in Feeling Seen. And, um, like, I, the amount of time I hear people say, oh, my God, I – or, or our, oh, sorry, our family um, had this experience or we heard about this or like, hey, let me tell you about my sister or whatever. Like it's so common, particularly I find in this generation where it wasn't okay to to ever talk about pregnancies out of wedlock and, you know, those kind of things. Like it's, yeah, it's been so interesting. Right. And everybody's experience has been different, right? Not oh, everybody yes. is going to be accepting. Yeah. Yeah, not everybody has those, you know, sort of, I mean, we feel so blessed because it was like a bit of a storybook for us, but there's so many people and, and, you know, navigating, you know, my sister's mom and dad and what, you know, what they felt like for that, you know, and her, and her biological brother, like, um, or sorry, her adopted brother who, you know, I mean, they raised her. She's, she's theirs first kind of. And so wow. it's, it's been just, yeah, it's been, it's been so fantastic. And it's the intricacy of relationships that I think is, is just I don't know, man. We're never going to get away from it. Yeah, and and then like you said, I mean, there's no way to automate relationships, right? I mean, now, I mean, we can open up our computer and have a conversation with, you know, this AI, but it's not, it's not like a bonding relationship of any kind. Right. Like, 
we all really wanted, and, and I'm, I'm so interested in the world, right, as they attempt to navigate this and, you know, make relationships safe. Like if you are, you know, you can navigate, you know, a relationship with an AI person or, you know, what that looks like. I think there's so much benefit in the world of, you know, figuring out how we maximize some of those things um, in terms of, you know, research and development and all that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, the, the risk, of course, will be this hard lesson to learn in the process that we all eventually need each other. We were never meant to do any of this alone. And that's that's basically like the gist of your book. Am I right? Like you yeah. need, we need people. It takes a village, so use it, right? It takes a village to raise a family, so use the the resources that you have there. A hundred percent. And I think you know sometimes like we feel like you know we sort of tell people to to use the resources. I think so much of us, for me, it's really like not underestimating just how much people need you, just how much you know even you know when they struggle to tell you or show you. Um, just how much you're needed by your children, by your parents. Um, and I think in this disconnected world, it is just those sobering reminders of you are remarkably powerful today. You know, just just being you, just giving away whatever you got in any particular moment, a smile, a wave. Um, it, it's just, it's what we need today more than ever. Yeah. I, I agree. So and you're so you're just basically saying be kind, right? Like be whatever gifts you've been given naturally, use them to, to spark other people. Right. And I think, you know, at the same time I often talk about this. The the new rules of the world for me are be kind and don't tolerate in that order. Because it's not also about just give give it away. I mean just all like everything goes let people walk all over you, you know, even the hurt people deserve to treat you like, you know, awfully. That's not true, right? They're, they're, but being kind first, giving the benefit of the doubt, seeking first to understand, all of those things that we've, you know, talked about for decades um, as being so important or such a, such a, a truth, that won't ever change. And we're just going to need to do it a little bit more often, the more disconnected we become and automated we become. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if for someone who has a hard time um, approaching strangers, right, how, what, like what would your advice be? For someone who's, you know, like a shy person, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, what would you say to someone who is not comfortable going up to someone they don't know and giving them a compliment or smiling at them. Like how how would you I guess explain to them that it's okay to give that smile or to say something kind to someone you don't know? Yeah, I mean I, I guess the whole point is is that this doesn't have to be done loudly. This doesn't have to be done in your face. Never underestimating even a note on a windshield of the head or um, you know, sending somebody a text message, all of those things that might be easier to do if, you know, if if, if the big world is scary or you've been taught not to trust other people. Um, I think the the best start is just really, it, 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 it is so much more about what's in it for you versus how they're going to respond. I get that. Yeah, I say that to people all the time, right? Like, you matter the most to me, not how other people are going to respond. And so when we talk about, you know, doing these things that involve, you know, engaging with other people, when we talk about, you know, practicing gratitude or shifting that focus into, you know, how needed you are by other people, you know, so much of this really is about 
you know, what we need to do to get you in a place where you feel like it's important for you, you know, where we, we can get you to be the best you can be. Right, right. So really, so my next question was, someone who is shy, like you said um, at the beginning of our conversation, you said every person wants to be acknowledged or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. So someone yep. who is super shy, like they still want to be acknowledged, but they don't want to be the focus of the room. Mm-hmm. Right, like it's not if you're going to do it, it's how. And I often talk about, like in my first book, Kids These Days, I, talk a, I talked a lot about how um, there's kind of two kids in this world, and not everybody responds to praise or connection the same way. And I often talk about, like, um, the flat Stanleys and the Cayus. And <clears throat> this is like a very simplistic, overly simplistic way of thinking about the world, but it's worked for me in many times where I think about, okay, so is this kid, like, a Caillou, like a over the top, like Caillou's a TV show that um, some parents may be yeah, familiar with. Yeah, watched it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is like it, a whiny. Yeah. So this yeah. is like a whiny, life sucking, always in your face, mom, 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 like wanting to be the center of attention all the time. <laughs> and there's those kind of kids, and then there's also the flat families, the hair up, the hoodie down. They're sometimes even mean, assholery-ish. Um, or just really flat. Honestly, like the the interesting thing to me about Caillou's is that they tend to be the beat them to the punch kind of kid. And what we tend to do when kids are over the top and always wanting our like they're we call them attention seeking, manipulative, all those things. I hate those terms, but we say it all the time. What we tend to do is set limits with kids like this, and we send we tend to be like, no, 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 no. You need to show me you can be calm before I'll answer you. And it turns out it works so much better if you if these are if, if you beat them to the punch, if they come in, for example, I say this to teachers all the time, if this is the kind of kid that's like taking so much of your time, get to them before they get to you. So be the first to sort of notice them when they walk in. Oh, good morning. Look at Jackson's here. Be sitting in their desk, um, praise them before they get a chance, put them in positions of leadership. Um, if you're coaching a team like this and you have a kid that's always, you know, the one, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me. I mean, identify them, fill them up, get their their bucket filled before they get a chance to get too empty. And now the exact opposite is true for kids with, um, you know, who's like a flat family. Because you can imagine if I was coaching a team and I had a Caillou and, I, and, you know, they walked in and I was like, oh, my God, woohoo, Caillou, you're here, everybody. Look at you. Can I get your water bottle filled up? I'm so excited you're here, dude. You're going to be on my first line. And they sort of settle and get emotionally regulated, and then I get access to the best parts of them. If I had a flat Stanley walk in my room and my, you know, my dressing room, for example, and I would say, oh, my God, look, stand here. Woo-woo. This kid with his hoodie up and his hair down is going to shy away and never come back. Okay? So he, on the other side of things, is, is a low and go slow. He needs the acknowledgement just as much as a Caillou does. It's not if I'm going to do it, it's when, and it's how. And so he might be the kid when I walk in. I'm going to acknowledge him, but I'm going to do it in a way that just is a nod. And on the bench, after a good shift, I might just walk over and quietly say to him, put my hand on his shoulder pads and say something like, you know, you're amazing today. You're my best defenseman out there. Keep it up. I'm proud of you. And when you get acknowledgement from a kid like that, you get sort of a a tiny smile maybe, and then you can quit because you've basically accomplished everything you ever need to accomplish. But it's it's this interesting piece between, you know, it's not if we do the same thing for everybody. I mean, this is true as as a parent. 
right? I have three children and they require very different mothers and it's exhausting and overwhelming. And it's like the hardest job of my whole life. But it's interesting because no people sort of come with the same story. We all need to be acknowledged, but the question is how you do it is often the trick of, of relationship. Yeah. I'm the same. I have three kids myself and yeah, they all need parenting like different parents. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, they only have us two, right? So the mm-hmm. two of us have to be oftentimes six different people in one day. Uh-huh. Right? And, and that they're is our greatest super teachers. Hard. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they are our greatest teachers. Absolutely. You know, they teach us about ourselves and the world, right? I mean, uh-huh. in many different ways. Mm. I can say this. Like, our kids are our biggest, sometimes my biggest fans, but they're also like... <laughs> They can rip me to shreds in a heartbeat. And I think I always say this, like, I mean, I wrote a best-selling book called Kids These Days, but if you watch me with our, my own personal children, you'd never buy the book because right. we're so much better at telling other people how to do it. And I wrote that book when I was emotionally regulated, but oftentimes my kids are the ones that get me the most dysregulated. Oh, yeah. I've been there many times, many, many times. Right? My kids are older now. And, I mean, my youngest is only 16, you know, so we're still at a tender part of life. But at the same time, when I look back, I think, my goodness, I wonder if I ever, like, lost my stuff in public because they used to make me angry. Mm-hmm. You know, it's oh, different now. Now that they're adults, you talk with them and you ha- your relationship with them is much different. Oh, my mm-hmm. goodness, Dr. Jody, I have loved this conversation Tell us, tell our listeners where we where we could find you. Well, anywhere on social media, I would love your community to be a part of ours. Um, uh, our website is drjodycarrington.com, and all the books are all over social media and Facebook and Instagram and all those places. And so, uh, and we I start my own podcast in the fall. It's called Everyone Comes from Somewhere. So we just started uh, that whole process here too. So we would love to have your people in our community. Oh, that sounds wonderful. That is going to be lovely. I mean, listening to all the different stories of where people have come from, where they've gone, what they, I love that idea. This is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was so nice talking with you. And I did love your book. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, so much for joining me. Confidence in Bloom is a celebration of self-love, a confirmation that you're an amazing, desirable, brilliant gorgeous, talented woman, even though you may not look like a screen star or a supermodel. The truth is they don't even look like that. We offer unconditional love to our partners, our children, our extended family, even our pets. It's high time we got out of our own way and learned to unconditionally love ourselves. Chic definitely does come in every shape. So if you want something to believe in, start with yourself. If you'd like to be a guest here on Confidence and Bloom and chat with me, contact me through Instagram at InfoBloomStyling or by email at Tina at InfoBloomStyling.com or through the Divas That Care website. Thanks for listening. This show was brought to you by Divas That Care. Connect with us on Facebook, on Instagram, and of course on DivasThatCare.com where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss a thing.